Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Well, as most of you know, I'm a big advocate of prison reform. But reforming prisons entails knowing what types of reforms you need, what's going to work, and what doesn't. And today's guest is perfectly equipped to have this discussion. She is a, a professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at John Jay College, and she is also the co-author of What Works and What Doesn't in Reducing Recidivism. Professor Deborah Ketzel, welcome to the show. Welcome back I, to the show, I should say. Thank you, and thanks for having me again. I'm oh, excited to talk. Absolute privilege. So I, I thought that we could talk about correctional assessments assessments of offenders. So first of all, what exactly is an assessment tool and what do they, what are they supposed to do? Yeah, great question. So an assessment tool, just like it sounds, is an instrument or a tool that's designed to give us information about a person. Um, we all make assessments every day in our life, right? About various uh, things that we're considering, you know, which way should I go to work today, perhaps? is a, There is a mental calculation going on. Um, when we talk about assessment within correctional settings and particularly sort of best practice around assessment, we're specifically talking about the use of a standardized validated tool that helps us to predict um, oftentimes the likelihood of recidivism um, is, is would sort of be the basic tool that we focus on. It, now, such tools, assessment tools, are administered at least two at two points in incarceration, right? They're administered upon entry to assess what programs that the offender needs, what would best suit him or her, and then there's also they're administered when when a person's getting close to release, say parole, so that we can assess the probability that that person is actually going to be effective and responsible out in the free world, right? Right. So theoretically, yes. <laughs> right. You, you know, from from talking, um, ideally, an assessment or what we would call a risk need assessment would be conducted prior to making decisions about the types of services that we're that we're providing to someone. Right. So on the front end, as someone's entering into prison, where should they be? Um, and part of that is going to be based on their risk and needs. Part of that, you know, a lot of institutions have security assessments as well. And so that might also drive some of that decision making. We then want to make sure that we do an assessment on the back end, to your point, to sort of identify what is it that this person needs as they move back into the community? How, how do we help them? But the reality is best practice would say that we also do reassessments annually that while someone's in prison, assuming that they're receiving services, let's continue to reassess and see where progress has been made and if there are other needs that we should be focusing on. Okay, so that's the idea. <laughs> I have a gnat flying around here. It's going to oh, drive no. me out of my mind. Okay, so what is the history of assessment tools, right? There's first generation, I think second generation, third, I'm not sure if there's a fourth, but what is the history of these tools? Yeah, so first generation tools would be, my, my colleagues and I call it the gut feeling index, the GFI, right? So it's a, a clinical assessment, not to take anything away from clinicians, but it's the idea that you know, we interview someone, have a conversation with someone, ask them about different areas of their life. And based on our interpretation of that discussion, we determine 
what their risk for recidivism is. And so that can be accurate, but it's not always going to be accurate. And oftentimes it's less accurate than other approaches, right? Because it's really susceptible to bias and individual um, well, subjectivity. It's about as accurate as flipping a coin, right? Like it, 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 it's not, it, it, they're not very good. I mean, it's been shown, I believe that such assessments that are made based on gut feeling or personal opinion or, or whatever are not, not very good. I wouldn't want someone making a decision about my life based on a, on that type of assessment. No. Okay. <laughs> Politically correct. And yet states the point. <laughs> I like it. Okay. So yeah. the second, well, then there's the second generation. So what, what comes next? Yeah. So the second generation of assessments are an advantage, right? Or a, an improvement over the first generation. These emerged early 1900s, more or less. And with these assessments, we're now using the research, using empirically supported factors to assess someone in a more objective way. So still probably doing an interview, most likely doing an interview, but now there are a number of items and everyone who's being assessed is being assessed at least theoretically in the same way across those different items. So it's a standardized process now and those items are supported by the research. So it's an advantage because it takes away some of that, that GFI, right? It, it's now we're all sort of operating from the same space. Okay. And how many generations are there? I can't remember if there's three or four. I'm, I'm not really sure. So I would say four. I sometimes hear a reference to five, but I'm not quite sure what five is. But but I think four is safe to say. All right. So the th when we get to third generation, what are we working with? Yeah. So the downside of the second generation, they were, you know, again, gave us a standardized assessment, much more objective. The downside of it is that those tools were only based on what we call static risk factors. So things that are predictive of recidivism related to recidivism, but can't be changed. Right. So how old was someone the first time they were arrested? Um, you know, have they ever had a violent offense? If it's happened, it's happened. We can't change it. Right. Third generation assessments include static risk factors, but they also include what we call dynamic risk factors. And dynamic risk factors are those criminogenic needs, right? There are things that, that relate to recidivism, but that we can change. So if someone has a drug problem and we're assessing that currently, we can change that, we can treat that. And when we reassess that then, or reassess them, we can hopefully see a change in that problem, right? So second generation only includes static assessments, which means if someone is, is rated as a high risk, they're always going to be a high risk, no matter what else happens in their life. Third generation allows us to reassess and see change. Third generation assessments also point out for us where to intervene. What are the, the areas that we should be providing services around so that we can bring that risk level down? So it basically tells you what can be fixed, right? Yeah. Like, well, what can, which is kind of important when you're talking about a department of correction, right? You need to know what to correct. That's right. Oh, okay. So now we're on to the fourth generation and what do we have here? Yeah, so fourth generation, I think are, are really kind of our most current state-of-the-art assessments. Again, I've heard some reference to five, I don't know what those are, um, but our fourth generation assessments include 
both our static and our dynamic factors, right? So we get the basis of a case plan, but it also considers and takes a look at what we call responsivity factors. And so, you know, sometimes risk assessments are criticized for being like a one size fits all. Um, but a fourth generation assessment gives us this information about responsivity, which is really about individual differences. And so it's not enough to say this person is in need of anger management treatment, for example, but what are the individual characteristics that relate to how well that person might do in a group setting or in a particular intervention? And so the fourth generation bring that piece, that more individualized um, look at, at someone or more, more holistic, you might say. So you, you brought up responsivity, which basically means mm -hmm. what, what treatment is going to fit the, the offender. Now there's general responsivity and specific responsivity. General responsivity basically is what works for everybody, right? Correct. But, but the specific responsivity has to do with what is going to work with the specific offender that's in front of us and the fourth generation tools actually measure that they look at that yes yeah okay. so that that should be part of your your case plan formulation so i'm guessing that the fourth generation assessment tools are more effective than the first generation assessment tools yeah. and i'm guessing they get more effective so first of all my question is what differentiates i mean you said you know there's there's specific responsivity they measure, they measure dynamic needs. Are there any other ways in which they differ from the previous iterations of assessment tools? I think some, well, it depends on the tool. Um, this sort of goes to responsivity, but gender, right? So there are some tools that would argue that they they weight gender differently or they control for gender differences. Um, depending on the tool, that would be likely a fourth generation tool. Um, I think the main difference between the third and the fourth is really this inclusion of responsivity. Now, in Connecticut, we have what's called the TPAI, and I don't remember what it stands for, but I do know that they only, they only measure static factors. Mm -hmm. And they say... It, you know, in their, I don't know what it's called, but in their mission statement or their game plan, whatever it's called, that, that these are very effective at predicting recidivism. And they they took it from, I believe, someplace in Pennsylvania that, that originated this. But what they don't say in there is that by not including dynamic factors, you're not able to properly assess somebody for the type of programming they need. And, and you can't place somebody in, the, in those programs. They don't mention that. But yet they get away with here in Connecticut with claiming that they're doing an evidence-based sort of approach toward yeah. offender correction. But if it's only measuring static factors, it's it's not the best, right? That That's basically what I, I, I want to know. Yeah, I think what you want is a connection between your goal and the type of tool that you're using. So if you are um, simply concerned about static risk, you're not even going to pretend that you're doing any type of intervention, you just really want to think about placement, then static risk is what it is, right? Or if you're a place that doesn't have any services, okay, use a static risk assessment, you're going to get still a good prediction. But if you want to help people change, right, if you want to provide intervention, if you want to help people um, improve their lives, 
then you need a third or fourth generation tool. Okay. So for my first, I'm going to break this next question. It's going to be two parts. First, how effective are fourth generation tools? I'm, I'm assuming, let, let me put a concrete to this level of service inventory. That's a fourth generation tool, right? The level M of it's level MF of something, right? MHS. Yeah. It's MHS. the LSCMI. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's fourth generation and I, I do a lot of work with them. Okay. Disclosure. How effective is this tool, one, at getting the proper treatment to an offender, and two, at predicting recidivism? All right. So it has been um, validated, right? It, it has predictive validity, which means that if someone is rated as high risk, they they have a higher likelihood of reoffending, right? So that's your second question I'm I'm answering first. I'm gonna cough for one second. I'm sorry. Okay. Um I went through an episode where I had a complete coughing fit, couldn't stop. And that's why ever since then I bring my water because <laughs> it was a disaster for me. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. Allergies. Um, oh my God, they're killing me. Yeah, they're bad. They're anyway. Horrible. So so yeah the LSCMI it's a validated tool. There's ample research to say it does what it sets out to do. What does right? it stand for? LSTMI. The level of service case management inventory. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, so it's CMI, level of level CMI. of service CMI. Okay. That's right. LSCMI is is the acronym. Um, so valid. Completely valid. Or val has ample, ample evidence around it. Your first question though, how well does it do at getting people the intervention they need? Right. It's just a tool. So what the assessment does is it provides a roadmap for a case manager, for an officer, for whoever is in charge of creating treatment plans and case plans. It gives sort of the answers to that person, right? But you still need a person to utilize the results of the assessment and create a case plan that's based on that assessment. I think that's where the disconnect is a lot of times um, in correctional work. Yeah. So they, they'll give somebody this assessment, say I, I come in and they give me this tool and they say, this, this is what you're needed, the various programs. But then we have multiple problems. One, do they even have the programs? Two, right. are they even implemented properly if they do have them? Because they can have the best programming in the world. And if it's not implemented properly, <laughs> then it, it, it's not going to work. So those are, right. are are some of the the known challenges. So mm -hmm. suppose let, let, let's just assume, and it's a big assumption. I, I believe me, I know that <laughs> that everything's lined up right. They've they've got the programming. The programming is implemented correctly. They're keeping track of offenders correctly, and now they give an offender this uh, level of service. Uh, I forget what it is already. See the oh, LS, like they, they give the assessment. Them how effective would it be at this point at predicting recidivism? So again, it, it will remain valid. I, I want to just point out one thing, because I think this is a misconception or a misperception sometimes about assessments. If we assess someone on the LSCMI and we assess them as high risk, it's saying that that person has a greater likelihood of reoffending versus someone else, right? But it doesn't say for sure. Like we, we're not that good at prediction. It's not going to say this person will reoffend. It's just a probability, 
right? It's just a likelihood. So we can have someone that we assess as low risk. Some of those people assessed at low risk are still going to reoffend, but the odds are against it. And so I just want to point that out because I think a lot of times people hear, you know, risk assessment and high risk or, and low risk, and they think that that it's deterministic. It's not. They're, no, they're I mean, no, predicting human behavior is, is inherently right. risky. But well, I guess what I'm asking is if you have, say, a parole board and you have, you know, me, I go before the parole board. And the parole board is either going to have me up there just talking and they can look at random programming I've taken and correctional people saying things about me, whatever, or you have the level of service, the, the CMI <laughs> there. What is going to be more accurate, I guess, at predicting who is going to be successful on parole or successful at integration into the community? So I would want to see a parole board using the results of an assessment okay. to help guide their decisions, right? It's it's not a one-off. It's not just the assessment, but it's the totality of the information. Think about the assessment as, as diagnostic results, right? If you go to the doctor, you're not feeling well, they're going to take a number of different measures um, to sort of assess or determine what's going on with you. The, the risk assessment is one tool that should be used to guide decision making. Okay, but so it definitely should be used, which brings me to my Absolutely. next question. How widespread are the, the, the fourth generation assessment tools in correctional uh, systems throughout the country and the federal system for that matter? So I would say today that it's more common than not that a jurisdiction is using either a third or a fourth generation tool, one, one or the other. Um, I'm, I would be surprised to show up someplace and have them not using some sort of risk need assessment. And when I say using it, I mean doing the assessment. I don't, right. it's, it's all the stuff that flows from it where I think that's less likely to happen still. Okay, so the majority, which means not all, are using either third or fourth. But that also means that that you're splitting it between third and fourth. So I don't know how the breakdown is. But why aren't, if, if, if we know, if the evidence tells us that the fourth generation assessment tools are effective at getting offenders the proper treatment and they're effective at pre predicting a probability of, of risk, why aren't these just used everywhere? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Um, so let me say in terms of accuracy or validity, I don't know that there is any research to say that a fourth generation is better than a third generation Okay. in terms of assessment of risk. It's when you get to the case planning piece, okay. right? Because the fourth generation is going to include the responsivity issues. And that's going to allow you to make a more detailed, more individualized, more meaningful case plan. But in terms of assessment of risk and needs, I would say there I, I don't know of any research that says fourth generation is significantly better. Um, but it's so better at I assessing think, needs, though. Uh, they both they both are designed I, to assess needs. I, or I mean, responsivity, better at res responsivity, which is mm -hmm. kind of important. I mean, you can if you find out the needs, you find out what's wrong. But responsivity tells you how to treat it. It is. You could use other tools to assess responsivity. I'm not saying they're doing that, but but you are, could do that. Are there other 
fourth generation tools other than the LSCMI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Compass is considered a fourth generation tool. Um, the ORAS is considered fourth generation. Um, so the ORAS is the Ohio Risk Assessment System um, coming out of the University of Cincinnati. The PICRA, I think I should know this, I think is fourth generation. The PICRA is used at the federal level. So it's it's pretty, it's much more standard now than it was. All right. I want to kind of, I don't know if backing up would be the right word, but or the right phrase I want to, but I want to address a little something di different. So okay. we, we talked about these, the programming. So general response, general responsivity, right? Mm -hmm. What I, I want to get into kind of general and specific responsivity, okay. general responsivity means what should be used with everybody basically, right? What, what, what the, the, the broadly speaking, what offenders should be exposed to or be treated with? Yeah, so general responsivity would say that generally speaking, people are most responsive to the behaviorally based approach to treatment, right? So that's when we talk about CBT or behavioral um, programs being more effective. That's general responsivity. What is the treatment approach that we should use that people are most likely to be successful with? Okay, so how how does that work? Use me. I, I'm I've got all. I believe me. I I've got them all. I don't maybe not so much anymore, but I the criminogenic needs are there. So I have I have antisocial uh, friends. I have antisocial values and antisocial attitudes. Right. Yeah. I screw everybody. My rights come first. How does the CBT address that? Yeah, so a good CBT program is going to engage in a number of different things. One of those is cognitive restructuring, right? So um, the antisocial attitudes, right? Um, having antisocial friends, what allows you to hang out with people that are getting into trouble? Maybe your thoughts around those. And so a CBT program is going to work with someone to help identify those thoughts or attitudes that they have that put them at risk of getting into trouble, right? And once we can identify those thoughts, we can engage in what we call cognitive restructuring. And so really helping people to identify new ways of thinking, to come up with replacement thoughts, to um, you know, recognize, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going down this path of risky thinking, I need to stop myself because this, this type of thinking is gonna lead me to trouble. Right. And so that's part of what a cognitive behavioral program will do. A good program is also going to engage in skill building. Right. So, um, you know, let's say and we might have talked about this last time, but, you know, most people that I work with, they all kind of know, like, to stay out of trouble. I need new friends. That's hard to do. Right. You get out, your friends are there. They want to celebrate, celebrate you being home. They're coming by and you're like, no, 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 I need new friends. I can't hang out with them anymore. Well, what are the skills that you need to be able to manage those situations? Right. How do you say no to someone that's been a good friend or maybe a sibling um, and wanting to get high, right? Wanting to hang out. Like, how do you make that decision? How do you then? take the steps to say no or suggest something else or say, I can't be around you anymore. That's tough, 
right? That's really tough to do. Yeah. Um, how do you make new friends? How do you have fun not being high, right? There's all these things that we sort of take for granted um, that people can just do, um, but it's not always easy. So a good program is going to help to identify the skills that will allow you to more effectively manage those situations. And it's not just about identifying the skill, but it's about really teaching people the skill, right? And giving them opportunities to utilize that skill and practice that skill so that it's it becomes more of a natural response um, versus, oh, hypothetically, this is what I can do. Because we never right. do the hypothetical. <laughs> no. So I would want to learn, right? A, a couple things would probably help. So first of all, someone, a, a cognitive therapist might ask me a question like, well, would you like it if this were done to you? If somebody were, uh, you know, stole your stuff or if somebody were loud while you were reading or if somebody called you names or called your mother name, whatever, might want to show me that, that I wouldn't like it if it were done to me or, or also show me that my strategies aren't very effective. Like selling drugs is not the route to financial independence. It doesn't matter if I'm selling it out of my house, on the corner, down the street, on, on the boat, whatever. Learn to think in principle. This is not going to be effective. Basically challenge my thinking patterns, what, I've, what I'm accustomed to doing, my way of looking at the world, in essence, to sort of restructure my entire outlook toward the world. Yeah. Yeah, some of it's going to be that, right? Some of it's going to be a little bit more concrete and hands-on. So let's take a specific situation okay. where you got into trouble, right? What was what was the outcome? What was the trouble that you got into? What was the situation? And then sort of take a step back and say, what were the thoughts going through your mind when this situation started? And okay, so these are the thoughts that were going through your mind. What were the feelings that came about from that? And we can start to see this link or what we want to help people do is see the link between their thoughts, their feelings, and ultimately this action that occurred. And if we can see that link, then we can say, okay, let's imagine this situation again. What might be some other thoughts you could have? Replacement right? thoughts. Maybe replacement thoughts that maybe aren't going to be so risky. And if you were to have that thought or, you know, this set of thoughts instead, what would the feelings be or the emotions be that emerge out of those? And chances are those emotions are going to be less extreme, right? And okay, so now if you're having this, these thoughts and these feelings around this situation, what's a likely outcome? And if we've identified good replacement thoughts, we should see that the the hypothetical outcome would be different, right? That so you're going through it. through your your thoughts, your beliefs, your emotions, your mm. your actions, the consequences. Basically, yeah. somebody that's an offender. Th these things are all screwy. I mean, for I know that's not a technical term, but but they're, <laughs> they're screwy. And what what the goal is is to get somebody to be basically more reasonable and realistic uh, about what life requires in yeah. order to have a successful life. Okay. Yeah. So what about specific? What are I, I, we obviously they're specific, so we can't go over every possible specific contingency, but what are a few that, that a correctional practitioner would come across like mm -hmm. that, that a specific offender needs? Yeah. So at its core, specific responsivity is about matching 
the person with the facilitator, with the staff member, right? That's sort of the the most core basic element of specific responsivity. Um, So if you've ever had someone that there's just a personality conflict, right? Like colleagues, neighbors, whoever it is, like there's never been a bad moment, but just not someone you're going to want to hang out with, right? Someone who sort of sets you off inside for no reason in particular. That could, that difference in personality could be a responsivity factor. I don't want to match someone with a group facilitator if there's a personality conflict, right? If it's like oil and water and they're not going to mesh, why would we expect that someone's going, that a, an offender is going to be successful in a group with a facilitator and they don't like each other, right? right. They're, That's they're not going to be very receptive, right? The guy, you know, you're not, just... yeah, you're not going to be receptive, right? So that would be one, just simple personality. Um, other factors that we might consider are age. So if we're putting someone into a group and we've got an 18-year-old kid and a 60-year-old, and maybe all the rest of the group are in their 50s and 60s, probably not going to, let's say 40s. So the 18-year-old in the 40s, um, the 18-year-old might look at the rest of these guys thinking, I don't belong here. I'm not like them, right? And so just that simple difference in age and life experience might be enough to sort of turn the 18-year-old off to the group, right? This isn't for me. It's these, I don't know what they're talking about. He's not relating. It's not relatable. Right. So those are, those are some responsivity factors, two pretty obvious ones. Um, Things like language would be an example of a responsivity factor. So I'm, I'm studying Spanish. I've been studying Spanish forever. It feels like, and I'm still really, really bad at Spanish. Um, I know enough where I can fake it, but if I got into trouble and I was assessed and put into a treatment group that I needed and that group was all in Spanish I would know enough to fake it right to laugh to nod along I could I could manage to do my homework or any group activities but I wouldn't actually be internalizing anything because it would all be above me right it would all feel a little bit superficial and I'm not quite sure that I got this or not and I'd be so worried about paying attention to the language and making sure that I'm following along that I'd likely miss the actual meaning and value of the group right so some pretty basic things um, that can have a big impact on how someone does in a group setting or not and I mean those are three very very basic things what about things like trauma? Uh, if somebody has dealt with specific trauma or has specific mm-hmm. issues, maybe, I don't know, ADHD or OCD, some of the, the, the these mental problems, would that affect the, their specific responsivity? Absolutely. That would be considered, could be considered specific responsivity. So with specific responsivity, we're especially looking for how will this impact someone's ability to be successful within the treatment intervention, right? Our goal is to get them to be successful. And if this is going to work against them, then we need to address it. 
So I say mental health responsivity factor. If if we have people that are struggling um, or struggling to function, right? That they have maybe severe mental health issues. We probably don't wanna do a cognitive behavioral group. We probably just wanna focus on behavioral um, approaches because the cognitive piece might be too abstract, right? So that would be an example. Or we would say, we're gonna have a group designed for people with this common um, common responsivity factor, right? I'm not gonna take one individual and put them into a group with a bunch of people that don't have sort of the same challenges. Um, so you, trauma, I would argue, so a lot of places will have the trauma-informed group. <laughs> We, we have this group for trauma um, and fine. There are groups that are designed to work through that, address that as they should. But I would argue that how we work with people generally should come from a trauma informed place okay. that all staff should be trauma informed and work with people through that lens. Being in prison is a traumatizing experience. It, right. it Just, is. Yeah. I, I, I won't disagree like, with that. No, I won't. <laughs> like, it, yeah. So let's work with people in a way that is supportive um, versus confrontational. All right. How about intelligence level? Because most inmates from what I've read have a, a IQ imbalance where performance IQ is well above verbal IQ. They have challenges when it comes to verbal IQ. I actually have the direct opposite. I have a learning disability when it comes to performance IQ, but verbal IQ, I'm, I'm very high. I'm in the, in the superior range. And I just wonder, because like when I would take programs in, in prison, and these weren't evidence-based programs by any stretch of the imagination, but some of them were just so simple. It just, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't for me. But mm -hmm. then when I designed my own or co-designed my own program and ran it, there were inmates that they couldn't get it that. Right. So I'm just wondering how much should programs be tailored to not, not just raw intelligence, but even education level. Absolutely. I mean, if we have, if you're working with someone that has literacy issues, don't put them into a group that requires them to do a lot of reading and writing because we're setting them up to fail. And so when we think about responsivity, think about it as barriers, right? Maybe that's the simplest way. What are the, the factors that are going to keep someone from being successful in this intervention? And is it IQ? Is it motivation? Is it age? Is it, you know, language, literacy? What is it? Or what are those factors? And let's address those factors so that they can be successful, right? When people fail, we just sort of put it on them. I hate I, that. Yeah, I hate we that. do it all the time, right? Like, oh, it's your I fault. I do, it's especially like, okay, with, with criminal offenders. Because, and, and I'm, I don't think there's a bigger believer in personal responsibility than me. I think offenders are always and everywhere responsible for their own behavior. But if you're going to set up a system and you're going to call it the Department of Correction and you're going to claim that you're running evidence-based programs and you're doing everything you can to help offenders succeed, but you're really not, and then the offender fails, you have to own it. That There has to be some responsibility. It reminds me of uh, 
teachers who go and teach in difficult environments and then say, well, what, what, what can I do? These kids, you know, they, they're from these horrible home life. Well, maybe so, but you agreed to take the job and the job is to teach those kids and you, and the corrections, your job is to help rehabilitate offenders. You have to take some responsibility or just stop making the claim, right? Just throw your hands up and, and give it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I think we, we fail. We as a correctional system fail to acknowledge the role that we play, right? That we need to do things better. <laughs> and that part of the recidivism rates are attributed to the lack of effective services, the lack of effective approaches, the lack of, you know, meaningful case plans tied to, to assessment results. Um, yeah, we got to do better. All right. For my last question, I want you to put on your Nostradamus hat. I, I know it's tough. I, I understand this can't be exact, but I just want you to do, to, to do the experiment with me. Suppose we had a correctional system and we were able to implement the, the best in assessment tools. The LSCMI is implemented in, in the beginning, at the end, yearly in between. The, the, the programming is evidence-based, it's implemented properly, and the correctional environment is such that good behaviors are rewarded and bad behaviors are punished. Say that when at the beginning of this, or say the comparison prison, the comparison system, recidivism, three-year recidivism is 70%. That's about where it hovers. Mm -hmm. What type of difference could we expect to see if everything was done right in recidivist uh, recidivism numbers? So if everything's being done right, right, yes. and let's add to that that there's transitional planning happening on the back end and evidence-based all, all the way through, yes. Everything's in place. I would estimate, assuming everything is in place and is ro 